session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolokwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. The book of the week that I announce on Monday's show is Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling. Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling, who was a chief White House economic advisor to President Obama and President Clinton. Uh, and the title got my attention, Economic Dignity, and then when I read more about it, uh, I saw that I very much wanted to understand his ideas more, that the goals of an economy, and when we look at things like economic growth or measuring how well an economy is doing, if we use standard metrics like GDP, gross domestic product, uh, and just look at those numbers, we might be missing what's more important, which is how is the economy impacting people's lives? And how are people doing, not just some people, all people, are they doing better than they were before? And so he comes up, he's come up with this concept of economic dignity uh, as being the North Star that we should make sure all of our economic policies and goals are aimed towards, that we should make sure everyone has that dignity which he defines and so I've started the book and I, I don't want to get into it too much because of course on Monday's show next week I'll talk about it in more detail that's Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling and also the reason why I wanted to read this book and some other books like it that are related to economics I think the field is interesting especially behavioral economics but also in general I think it has such a big impact in the world oftentimes when we look at policies that are passed, or not oftentimes, virtually always, the economic impact is one of the critical components. Is it gonna cost money, make money? Where do we have to cut money from? Uh, what's the economic impact on jobs, on growth, on the deficit? Various factors are almost always significantly involved in determining whether a policy can become law or become uh, the law of the land or become an actual policy that gets implemented. So I think it's so important to understand these things for everyone, not just if you're uh, an economist. And also related to what is happening now with uh, the issues of race and racism being so much at the forefront of the national discussion here in the United States and also around the world. I've mentioned this before, and I think it's worth noting again, that without huge economic reform, we won't overcome this issue of race and racism in the United States. That, of course, so many things matter. This issue uh, has so many facets to it. It's so deep in the history of the United States in every aspect of it. So that the solution, of course, is going to involve a lot of changes as well. It's not going to be just one issue 
or one solution that's going to solve the whole problem. It's going to have a lot of multifaceted aspects that will be involved in coming to some kind of solution which will lead to more equity and more justice in the United States. Uh, but the economic piece, I think, is huge. And it is brought up a lot, so I'm not saying it's not brought up, but I think at times it gets overlooked that uh, we can look at other things only or maybe we don't put enough emphasis on it. But to me, there will be no uh, real equity or justice or this overcoming of the plague of racism in the United States until we have huge economic reform. Because as individuals experience poverty, that affects their outcomes in a variety of ways. And we know that sadly, and uh, understandably based on how things have been done, unfortunately, in the United States, race, race and poverty are very highly linked, that there is a huge correlation between someone's race and their uh, economic standing in the United States. So if we don't make changes to economics, we won't make changes to race in a long-standing type of a way. Uh, and this goes into things like how we allocate resources, how we take care of certain communities and don't take care of other communities, what we invest our money into, things like education, public health, safety, um, resources to make sure people are okay, and, and the book Economic Dignity gets into that, that everyone should have the ability to take care of their family and also enjoy their family, and so that people can have paid time off and things like maternity and paternity leave. All these things are crucial in general to have justice, but will also have impacts on the issues of race and racism in the United States. And I won't just focus on this economic side. I wanted to talk a bit about the psychology of race and racism. And in thinking about it, which I always have, but even lately even more because of how much it's in the national argument and discussion and, and mindset, you just see how big of an issue this is. A lot of issues or almost any issue when you just look at it in a simplified way, it seems simple. Let's not judge people based on their race or their color of skin. Let's love everyone. Let's treat everyone the same. And, and all those things are very true and simple and important and would lead to progress, but achieving those things can be very hard. It's easy to say, think of everyone the same, and it makes sense, or by the same I mean as equal, but to achieve that is a lot harder, if we, and if we don't look at the factors involved, we might miss the point in trying to simplify it too much. So when we look at racism in the United States, again, it has multiple facets and multi-factors, but one of the issues we are looking at is people's feelings to races and people of different races. What I mean by that is logically most people will say everyone should be treated fairly and equally, everyone deserves respect, and they would agree to that. There are some people who are explicitly racist and maybe not, it's maybe not few, but it's definitely some, but it's not, I think, the majority of people who really do think there's a superiority of certain races, white supremacy, versus other races, but that's not the majority of people. I think, of course, that issue is important to look at the white supremacy and how it is, in a way, impacted a lot of the history of the United States and continues to in a variety of factors, including things like policing, um, education, 
industrial, the prison industrial complex and how those uh, issues affect race and racism and the outcomes of people's lives. But the majority of people, I don't think, have those values and beliefs explicitly or um, consciously, or they would ex say that they, they think this way. The reason why I talk about feelings is this is what we're talking about when people say implicit bias. You maybe have heard this term before. An implicit bias is something that you can be even unaware of that you hold within yourself. And I say, I said feelings because it's more part of our unconscious and something you just feel automatically in the moment without even being aware of it or having a conscious control over it. And one of the ways they measure implicit bias is by taking something called the implicit association test. Maybe you've heard of it before. And it can be used, and you can go online. I don't have the website uh, on me offhand, but you can look it up. If you Google it, implicit association test, you'll find places where you can take those tests. And it's not just related to race. They have it related to age and sex and sexuality, religion. You could take it on a host of different factors. But essentially what they do is they measure the difference in the speed that you react to making certain associations. So for example, they will show you something and say, if you see something that is a black face, like an African-American face or something good, you click. Uh, or if you see something that's a white face and something bad, you click. And they make you take different types of tests and they see your reaction time. And essentially what you can see is how quickly your brain, your unconscious is associating certain types of things like good and white and good and black or bad and white and bad and black uh, and different things, uh, good and woman, bad and woman, things like that. And so the quickly, the more quickly you can make an, asso an association, it shows that you, those things are more linked in your brain together. You have that feeling about them. This is good and this is bad. And it's automatic because you are trying to react as quickly as you can. And because sometimes the association isn't quite there, it takes you a little bit longer because you have to override it. You think, oh wait, uh, my first reaction was that this was bad, but I have to say it's good. So it takes you a little bit longer. And that difference in your reaction time can show your bias, your implicit bias. And many people who take these tests have actually, it could be a quite a difficult uh, experience because you might think of yourself, let's say, if someone who's not racist, and then you take this test and it shows that you have uh, a racist association between, let's say, white being better than black. And that can be very hard pill to swallow for people who, let's say, value being not racist, value trying to promote justice. Um, but even amongst people who uh, think those things, unconsciously they might hold on to these types of beliefs or feelings. Even at times people who themselves are African American can hold on to these uh, types of associations. And so what does this tell us? Well, it's telling us that when we are living in a racist society or when we are exposed to many images and um, let's say uh, it could be visual images, we hear things, we see things that are presented in a certain way that express something that starts to affect us. We have a feeling about that. And so if we take another step back or look at this in a different way, we have feelings towards everything. 
What that means is that everything brings up something for us. And a very simplified way of looking at this is there's two measures of the feeling. There is good versus bad, meaning approach the thing or go away from the thing. And then the strength of it, how weak or strong it is. A lot of things you might have a weak feeling towards, you might not even realize it, right? You might look at um, a cup and you have a slight positive, but it's not very much. You might look at your child and you have a strong positive uh, re reaction. You might look at someone you really dislike and you might have a strong negative reaction. You might look at someone you don't really know and you might have a very mild, maybe positive or negative feeling towards them. So we have feelings towards everything. So you have feelings towards uh, people of different ethnicities, religions, sexual orientations, anything you can think of and really every even object you look at, you have a feeling towards that. Now the thing is our feelings are not something set in stone. They change. Um, an example I use is sometimes things like a name. If you like, let's say there's a name that you have heard before, but you never really have interacted with someone with that name or mildly have, but now you start to date someone with that name. So at first that name might be slightly positive or might have a little bit of a meaning to you. But as you get closer to this person, that same name will start to mean so much because it brings up all these feelings and associations you have with that name because of that person. And then let's say you go through some kind of heartache or heartbreak by that person. They broke your heart. Now that name could be associated with pain and anger. You see the name, you feel something negative towards that same name that before you felt nothing, then you felt something very strong. And then you now feel something very negative towards that same name. The name didn't change. Your emotion towards that name has changed. And of course, your emotion to, towards a person has, but I'm showing this to say even a concept or a name or a word can have huge uh, impact uh, or can change the feeling or feeling towards it can change over time based on our experience with that word. So when we look at things like race, you have hundreds, thousands, even and you could say millions by the time you're an adult experiences with race or people of different races that start to affect the way you feel towards those people or that group, whatever it might be. And so we're at a commercial break, but after the break, I'll get more uh, into this issue of how our feelings can change, how it in a way can be disheartening because these things tend to change slowly, but also can give us some hope that they can change. And then when they do change, it can lead to some more meaningful, longer lasting change, which is what we are hopefully all trying to go towards. So let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. So before the break in the last segment, I was talking about issues related to race and racism and uh, our feelings towards these types of issues, not just about the issues, but about different groups and different people. And even just saying that, I understand it could bring this feeling of discomfort of having feelings towards groups, but we do have them. Whether you want to acknowledge that or embrace it or not, it's there. You're gonna feel certain things about uh, groups, every single group of people, whether it's your own group, other groups, something I'll also touch on. Um, and different ways of looking at groups, including race, uh, sexuality, sex, male, female, gender, 
religion, whatever it might be, if we have feelings towards groups and these feelings get formed by the totality of our experiences. Some can have a stronger effect than others. Let's say you um, had someone get hurt by someone. Maybe that group will now be negative to you based on your experience with that or it have a bigger impact than other experiences you had. Or we see things or you hear things. Uh, I work with people and they say my parents would tell me everyone um, is out to get you or certain groups of people are out to get you or are negative. And so even if they didn't have an experience with someone from that group, they can start to have untrustworthy feelings towards that group, feeling that they're bad, feeling that they're negative, feeling that they should dislike them. So our feelings can be affected by so many things. And and here when I say feelings, it's related to when we talk about like emotions, like happiness, sadness, but I mean feelings about certain groups in a way our feelings about them, which leads to our judgments towards them. If you have a pleasant feeling towards certain people, you're going to have a good feeling around them and that feeling makes you want to approach them and to be close to them. So we get affected by all the experiences we have in general, but when we look at an individual, let's say group, you're affected by all the interactions you've had in your life with that group. And by interactions, it doesn't just mean with those actual human beings. It could be pictures you've seen, videos you've seen, stories you've heard, the ways people have told you about those people or those groups. And this is why it's so important as parents. Uh, it's becoming, thankfully, an even bigger trend for people to say, well, how do you talk to your kids about race and racism? Or how do you raise anti-racist children? And so, of course, as is always the case, you first have to check yourself. If you have a lot of racist feelings or make especially racist comments, of course, that's going to affect your kids and how they view people of different races or different groups. So you have to be aware of yourself and what you yourself harbor and feel and think. Um, but then also it's something that is going to be part of your process of being a parent. It's not just have a conversation with your kids about race and racism and that's it. You're done. No, because they're paying attention to everything you do every day. If they notice you make comments about certain groups, then they are going to start to internalize those things. So if you tell them we should love everyone, everyone is God's children, uh, treat everyone fairly and make that statement and say, I'm done. But then the next day so they hear you yelling about people of a certain group, making negative comments or judging people from a certain group. That's going to, of course, affect how they think about the, that other groups and races more than that one statement you made that you think has inoculated them from racism. It doesn't work that way. I've worked with a lot of individuals and families who are homosexual in an Iranian household, and they have stories and memories about hearing their parents say, oh, gay people are so this or that, judging them and calling them dirty or immoral or whatever other nasty things they might say about someone um, of a different group. And then that individual, that son or daughter, turns out to be gay themselves. And now they've internalized this view even of themselves. I remember my mom or dad saying this with such judgment and disgust on their face, the way they looked talking about that group. And now I am that. I am one of those people that they uh, dislike and said was so bad. And this could even lead to an internalized homophobia or negative feeling about being gay that even they'll dislike themselves or feel like they're unlovable because um, they're now a part of this group that they 
were told by their family and of course unfortunately very often by society as well in different ways and depending on where you live to a different degree and so they've internalized that feeling about themselves and june is uh, lgbtq pride month and this weekend was the pride parade which i talked about on monday i took part of um, and even when you hear that word pride you might i think some people have a reaction to it but it's in response to being told you had to be ashamed or embarrassed or it was bad who you were that the response is and makes sense to be proud you are allowed to be proud of who you are you don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed um, or feel that what you're doing or who you are is somehow immoral or bad. You can and should have pride. And actually, there is something called healthy, genuine pride. We usually think of pride in this negative way of being boastful or, or being mean to others or putting others down and putting yourself above them. But you can have genuine pride in who you are. And I think everyone deserves to feel pride in who they are and should definitely not feel embarrassed or ashamed uh, of who they are. And even these types of feelings about ourselves can be affected by what happens on the outside. So I talked about a study a few years ago, I think it was, that was finding that LGBTQ teens who lived in states where le gay, uh, gay marriage was legalized, they saw a decrease in suicide in those groups. And it was very clearly shown that it was related to um, the change in these laws or that that had an impact because different states had these laws go into effect at different times. And so sometimes people think, well, who cares about these laws or who cares if we, you know, let people get married or if we call it some kind of civil union or have different terms for it. But we have to look at the impact this has on people and what we're telling them. Are you an other or are you part of us? Are you somehow less human or deserving of less rights than everyone else? Or are you equal and we accept you as you are? So these laws, of course, have huge impacts on those individuals, but they also have a bigger impact on the whole community and culture and society in how we feel and how people feel about a certain group. When people are not allowed to get married, we're telling them something and we feel that, oh yeah, that's part of that group. But when we say, no, you are like everyone else, you can get married too, that's giving them the message you are more accepted or you are accepted. And even related to marriage, now the issue of race, in the United States until 1967, it wasn't fully legal in all states to get married. I think uh, based on the Supreme Court decision in that year, 1967, July 10, uh, June 10th, 12th, I believe, June 12th, 1967, 13 states uh, the Supreme Court said that now it was illegal to say that interracial marriage was illegal or that interracial marriage was legal in all 50 states, that it was okay. And so even that, what do you think that message sends? When first you say you can't get married, you're clearly saying there's some huge difference between the races that we shouldn't let them quote unquote mix and that there's something impure about mixing them and we're sending a lot of these messages. So when people talk about changing laws and rules that sometimes seem minor we have to look at of course first the law itself has impact and implications for certain people that it directly affects but also on the larger society we start to see changes in how people will judge or look at certain groups or certain individuals and that's why it is important so when we are trying to tackle something as big as racism in the United States, which has such an unfortunately long and ugly history, 
it's going to take time, of course, and the solution is going to have to be multifaceted because it has to address so many of the different issues because unfortunately racism, it's like the water we uh, are swimming in as fish. It's everywhere in the United States and we're so used to it or we're so accustomed to it, we don't even see it anymore or we don't sense it because it has permeated so much or almost every aspect of life that we forget that it's even there. We just take it for granted. And so we hear things, you know, I just saw, I think it was yesterday, it was announced or today, Aunt Jemima, which was, um, it's a, a brand of syrup for pancakes and waffles that had a picture of this African-American woman on it. I remember it since I was a kid and I think it's been around since 1890 or something like that, but it's been around a long time. And they recently announced the company that owns that brand, that they'll change that name or that image because it's associated with some uh, connections with slavery. And I've seen a lot of people going back and forth and, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. Some people are in favor of it. Uh, as anything right now, unfortunately, in the U.S., not just politics, everything becomes a very politicized and polarized discussion. How could they? They should have done it. And do I think this is the most important thing? Absolutely not. And so anyone who thinks that people were protesting for Aunt Jemima to change its name, they're clearly missing the point and not listening to why people are upset and what they are fighting for. But these small things do have an impact. So am I outraged that it wasn't changed earlier? Not necessarily. Um, do I think it's a huge deal? No, but I think it's a step in the right direction that everyone is looking at what are the racist uh, ideologies, racist ideas, racist thoughts, racist just uh, aspects of life that we might have taken for granted because it was so much a part of the system. And now we're, we're taking a closer look at, we're evaluating it again to see, okay, what, what's going on here? What's something that we accepted that we didn't even realize was racist? You know, I'm a big sports fan. There's a, a football team, American football team called the Washington Redskins, which is like a slur to Native Americans, uh, American Indians of the United States. And it's still the team name. And I think that's ridiculous. And every so often uh, protests or whether it's online or in person types of things get put out where people are saying we need to change the name and the team would likely lose a lot of money due to the branding. And so they clearly don't want to do it and they make it seem like it has other reasons, but um, it seems very clearly to be a financial decision and they don't change that name and we just kind of accept it. So I understand that for some people they think it's going too far and it might and sometimes it does go too far people trying to change things, change the name of things, um, you know, make huge shifts or becoming too quote unquote PC, politically correct or sensitive. I, I think that can go too far, but I do think these things matter. We do have to look at these things. Words matter. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've talked a bit about the LGBTQ community. The word, there's an F word. There's a few I probably can't say on the radio. There's one that was associated and is associated with homosexual males. And when I was a kid, I would hear it more than I do now. And is that word itself going to change homophobia and uh, gay rights? No, but it is related to that in how we think about and talk about people. It does have an impact. And so we don't want to minimize that. Yes, it could seem odd and we're so used to, let's say, certain things or saying things a certain way. Change is always 
difficult and people don't like that. They're going to be resistant to it. But we want to look at what is it that we've accepted in this society that might have a negative impact on some people, even if that person isn't you. And so lastly, I was talking about this othering of people, us versus them. And so we often don't realize how much we do this, but when we talk about certain people or certain groups, we make an us and them. And there does seem to be a natural tendency in us as human beings to have us and them. Uh, even babies seem to prefer people when they're very, when they're infants with the same race as them, which probably is related to um, if you're a baby, you want to look for family or people that are going to take care of you. So you might be drawn to those types of people more. So there could be some natural tendencies of us and them. A feeling of safety, a feeling of security can be tied into that, uh, which can make it seem like bad news. Uh-oh, are we prone to racism? Do we have to be racist? But I don't think that means we're doomed to be racist because who we think of as us and them can change over time. The way you view groups can change. Also, it could change in different contexts. For example, you might be an Iranian, and so you think of all Iranian people around the world, the diaspora, including people in Iran, but also around the world. But then you might be in a group of Iranians, and you might be talking about uh, people from different cities or regions and feeling very different, and now they're the others. We're born in this city, they're born in that city. Or within Iranians, you might look at people from different religions and feel like, oh, there's the Iranians that are this religion, Iranians that are that religion, and it's different. But then now, if the world was against Iran, you would all of a sudden be like, oh no, all Iranian people were uniting. So in different contexts, even us and them can change. But also the way we view different groups as including them as part of us can change as well. If you've never interacted with someone from a certain group, that's going to make them more of an other to you. But what people almost always experience is that when they interact with people in a more extensive way, they tend to have a change in how they see, of course, that individual, but also that group, and it's hopefully not just one person, but many people from whatever group we're talking about, because we start to humanize them. They become less this other thing, and the less we know of something, usually it makes us going to makes us be a little bit anxious or afraid of that thing. It's an unknown. And so to be safe, there is a certain degree that as humans, we like to explore, but we also balance that with a certain apprehension towards things we don't quite know. So if you don't know anyone from a certain group, never interacted from them, it's understandable that your first reaction might be apprehensive, might not be so forward to loving them and embracing them. You might think you have to protect yourself first. And so this is why it's important for us in overcoming this otherness that we put on other people to interact with them. And, see, and you'll almost always see, oh, they're people like me or whatever I thought my group was. They're clearly that too, because we're human beings. We're not something so different. And I have a lot of thoughts about this. And I know we have some callers on the line, so I want to get to them too. And we're at a, a commercial break. So I might get come back to these issues related to how we view us and them and others, but just wanted to share some thoughts on how the way we feel about different groups, it, it runs very deep, which can be disheartening because if something runs very deep, it's harder to change. But the good news is it can change. 
and when these things start to change, the change tends to be more long-lasting and more meaningful. So rather than just saying, hey, let's love everyone, everyone love everyone, makes sense, it sounds beautiful, I'm all with that, I agree with it. We have to recognize that for the changes to happen, it's going to take time, both in having conversations, talking to people, in creating changes in the world and the experiences of people, in changing the ways people interact with one another, it's going to take a long time. And so we have to be, I don't want to say patient, and then we have to wait for the change because we should be acting and, and, and there's a certain, I think, the, the urgency of now. We have to be fighting for it every day and every moment, but realize that the changes will likely take time. So we keep fighting for change. We're not patient and then we wait to make change. But for the long lasting changes that happen, I'm hopeful they can happen, but I also believe they will take some time. And I hope we are all there for that fight towards justice for everyone. Let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamro, you're on the air. Hi, um, um, I don't know, Doctor, um, the subject that uh, I want to discuss about uh, is it, not very related to the that, subject. That that's okay. Said. Yeah, don't uh, worry about okay. that. I mean, yeah, the calls can be um, about about something else or whatever they're okay. related to, so no okay, problem. Yeah, go right much. ahead. Uh, I have a, a 21 years old uh, daughter. Um, she's very nice. Uh, and uh, she's very responsible. She's a junior at the university, and um, we never had any problem, you know, when she was growing up. The only problem that uh, I see is that uh, she cannot uh, come along with her own age group. She's very con uh, convenient uh, with the adult group, and uh, she never parties. She never do any risk. No, she's not adventurous. Everything around her should be safe. And with, with this pandemic that it uh, happened, uh, so she becomes more isolated and more, you know, uh, separated from her own age group. And uh, uh, that's uh, my concern uh, about the new generation, uh, you know, with, uh, with the isolation problem that they have. So I don't know whether you have any advice about that. Well, I'm sure we can get more into what's happening with her. I know you said generally, and there are some concerns about this generation, the younger generation, but we'll, we'll focus more on your daughter um, here to see what's going on with her since you know, you're know you calling about her. And so you were saying in general she has a hard time getting along, or you mean especially with yeah, what's happening? Yeah, in happened? general... Um She's uh, not very, uh, she, she doesn't have that much friends, you know, just uh, a few. And uh, even when she was in high school, she would rather to have to lunch with the teachers than, than the students. She never had a close friend. She was always bullied because she's the only child. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, you know, we are more, you know, older parents, you know, the, we, we had her when I was, you know, in my, in, you know, older age, you know, when I was in my 40s. So she's very convenient around adult group. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, she parties with us, but she never parties with her own group at all. And uh, she doesn't take any risks, you know. Uh, everything should be safe. Uh, mm -hmm. Otherwise, she's not going to try it. 
So, um, you know, you, you've mentioned that not taking risks and, and even how everyone has felt more anxious with coronavirus, but it seems like she's already prone to anxiety. And so people who are prone to anxiety have become even more anxious and, and taken this probably even harder than others. So there is some concerns there about the, the socialize, uh, socializing and the way you're saying even from a younger age, she preferred now, actually, maybe I should be careful about using that word preferred, but she would spend time with the teachers more than her peers. The reason why I stopped myself from saying preferred is that we, we would want to understand what is her experience. So to begin with, when we look at any aspect of our life, almost always the most important important thing is what we feel about it. So it's not that everyone has to have a certain number of friends. You have to have four friends or two friends or eight friends. What matters is how satisfied you are and you feel about your social network and your social relationships. And so we would have to ask her that. And so the reason why I stopped myself from saying preferred is we don't know if she prefers the teachers or if she has a a hard time connecting with her peers so she went to the teachers because that was safer or easier or was available to her uh, and I don't know if you've had conversations with her about this issue but we'd want to understand what is her experience is it she actually feels like she yeah, gets along you know, with she's, uh, she was tired she was just like that she wasn't uh, you know reluctant to to just uh, go with her own crowd and uh, you know uh, uh, for example I, I take her to the soccer field and in the soccer field if the ball comes toward her you know she, she, she doesn't want to get involved so she goes you know in the other side uh, not to touch anything because she doesn't want to get involved in any kind of conflict with her own mm -hmm. age group or uh, is she she's very comfortable with uh, older people and uh, as i said i tried that uh, she would be you know with her you know her own age group but uh, they were bullying her because she's the only child too so I, I, well, I, I, I mean, I, I know that. you said that now twice, but it's not that every only child gets bullied. Um, mm -hmm. It's not something. So I don't know if it's just that that led to it. I'm not saying she uh, mm -hmm. deserved to get bullied or it was her fault, but I don't want us to just say, well, she was the only child, so she had to get bullied. There's probably more to it than that. And so also we, what we want to look at here is, um, I mean, you're describing someone very anxious, very afraid of any like conflict whether it's physical or emotional or anything kind of prefers being safe because of that anxiety and so that could be her disposition and likely it is her disposition but we also want to look at well, what's been done to either reinforce that sometimes when parents have an anxious child it puts you in a tough position because on one hand of course you want to make your child feel safe and secure and that they're okay but at the same time you don't want to keep them too much in the comfort zone where you actually reinforce that the outside world is scary and just stay safe and then they choose over and over again to pick safety over taking some risk so it's finding that balance where you give your child the safety and the security while also encouraging them to have new experiences um, come out of their comfort zone a little bit with support so you don't just have to throw them and say sink or swim but you can support them and to give them that so that they don't get too comfortable in that bubble which feels very safe 
And so they're going to need some support to get out of that. But also coming back to the social life that you've described, a few different things can be a factor here. One is social anxiety. So she uh, has a hard time feeling comfortable in social interactions. She's afraid of being judged or looking stupid or looking uh, socially inept or whatever it is. And so that interferes with her making friends and making relationships. Another factor could be that she doesn't pick up on social cues very well. There are things like social skills that we have and people are better and worse at, let's say, understanding um, what people are feeling, how to read a room, how to interact with someone, what's being said, but also what's not being said to help them understand the interaction better. And so it's possible your daughter doesn't do well with picking up social cues in general, or it could be that she didn't have a lot of that interaction growing up, so didn't encourage it. But there could be that going on as well, that she has a harder time uh, connecting with people because of that social skills deficit. And of course, it doesn't have to be all just one or the other. It could be a combination of those things and other things as well. So looking at your daughter, even when you say, you know, she was bullied because she was an only child, and she what had was everything available, uh, you know, and then mostly of the friends that she had, uh, they were, you know, just they had sibling and she didn't. So uh, she could not, you know, defend herself in the in situations. You know, she was um, uh, when she was uh, even in the uh, middle school or, you know, elementary school, she couldn't. Uh, so she was always get involved with them for a while, and then as soon as something happened, uh, she kicked back, and she hmm. doesn't want to get involved with that person anymore. So uh, what you described might not always be, I'm not saying she wasn't bullied, but that might not be bullying. She might, um, because of feeling more anxious and more sensitive, if she experiences something negative with a friend with someone it mm -hmm. makes her retreat even stronger to okay this person is not safe this person is going to hurt me this person is bad and then so she wouldn't want to be friends with them now if someone yeah. is really bullying us we shouldn't be friends with them that's not a friend that's not someone who cares about us now we could try to confront them and talk to them about it and possibly it turns into something but accepting the disrespect is not going to be part of a friendship. Um, but what I'm hearing from you and what you explained there was maybe there was bullying, but it also seems that she had a very quick knee-jerk reaction to any kind of conflict or discomfort that would make her cut ties with anyone once there was, let's say, a bad moment or a bad feeling. Yeah. How did you... Let me ask you this. How do you think, if you look at your own family with your, your uh, you and her father and, and your daughter, how do you feel like you guys dealt with conflict? You know, um, I think um, she uh, learned from her dad uh, to, you know, just uh, not to get, uh, you know, argue that much. Or mm -hmm. she's um, she's very sensitive. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, both of us, we are sensitive person. Uh, yeah. You know, both parents, we are very sensitive. Mm. So I think she learned from us too to be sensitive too. 
So that's that's one of the problems, I, I suppose. Yeah. Well, and you know, you said learn from, which probably there's the learning, and then also we have different dispositions. So likely, if you both are sensitive as her parents, it, it can make sense that she has more of a sensitive disposition. There's a book called The Highly Sensitive Person by mm -hmm. Elaine Aaron. I don't know if you've, have you read that book? No, no. It might not be bad to read it. I mean, it seems you might relate to it yourself, but also for your daughter. Sure. And so, you know, sensitivity, we tend to think of it as a weakness, but it also can be partially a strength in the sense that when someone or even a, a thing, I'm talking into this microphone right now, it's very sensitive. Because it's so sensitive, it picks up on a lot of things, which actually can be good. It makes it work well. But also mm -hmm. because it's sensitive, it can get overwhelmed more easily. So if there's a lot of sound, it might get feedback or create some uh, a bad sound because of that. So that's how people are too. People who are more sensitive, they tend to take on things more. They might notice something that someone else might not. But mm -hmm. they also can get overwhelmed more. And so because of that, they might deal with that feeling of overwhelmed but different ways. And it seems that one of the ways your daughter does it which is a common one is to try to avoid or get away from anything that might make her slightly uncomfortable and yeah. the reason why I asked you about how your family deals with conflict is um, it's unfortunately an issue that a lot of times people think no fighting is the goal and of course we don't want to have ugly fighting and disrespect is never okay and the types of arguments we have is important but we also want to encourage healthy conflict in our family, meaning that a lot of times what people learn is in the way you said it, I don't know if this is what you also meant, is that, you know, don't make things a big deal, let things go, uh, don't create an argument if you don't need to. And those sound like good things on the surface, but unfortunately what it also encourages is hold your feelings in, don't share if you're upset about something, and a big uh, take home from that is that conflict is scary, it's something that should be avoided. And so once she has conflict in the outside world, which is inevitable in any kind of friendship or relationship that gets closer, yeah. you're going to have some level of conflict. It could be that for your daughter, she sees that as some kind of a crisis. It's like a disaster. She avoids mm -hmm. it like, you know, the, the building is on fire and she has to run out of the room. And mm -hmm. so because of that, maybe a lot of times her friendships get cut very short because once it gets to a conflict, which again is how you get close is you're going to overcome those types of conflicts, she goes away and then so it, it ends up ending the relationships, leaving her more alone. So I, I can understand your concern for her that she's isolating and everyone feels more isolated during the COVID pandemic, mm -hmm. but for some people, they might be leaning into it too much, going too much in that, to that comfort zone and it seems like you're concerned. Now, I do want to talk more about what's going on with her. I spoke a lot on some of those issues and hear what's happening and you're also think about um, your conversations with her about these topics because she knows what's going on more than you and I do. And so I mm -hmm. want to know what she's told you about what's going on and what she's dealing with and also how happy or unhappy she is with, with her social life. So, so after the break, we'll talk a bit about those things, okay? Okay. All right, let's go to commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqua. Thank you. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I think I had my microphone still on mute. Thank you, Azada, for uh, co covering for me there. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to her now. Radio Hamra, yes, you're hi. there. Okay, so we were talking before the break about your 21-year-old daughter, uh, who are, you are concerned about her social 
life more than anything, it seems. And as I mentioned before the break, I wanted to see what you have heard from her about uh, these issues and especially what's going on now. What has she told you? Uh, you know, uh, she says I'm okay with it. I'm happy okay. the way I am. You are so much concerned about me. <laughs> and uh, as I said, she's a great student. Uh, she mm-hmm. was working before, uh, for since she was 16, she was working, and then she quit when she was 20. She said, I want to focus on my education. And uh, she was great at her work, too. So everything goes well as much as she's around with the adults around her. But uh, if she gets involved with her own age group, she, uh, she gets some um, she has anxiety to mm-hmm. she can't uh, come along with them have you ever asked her about that that yeah, she seems she to says, get along uh, she says uh, you know I don't want to to go with this age group or I, I say why well, you don't go to travel with them to go to see around the world or, you know to to go with them you know the schedules that they have in universities and, and she was for a while and then um she said, no, I can't. Uh, they party too much. This is too much for me. I cannot handle hmm. the situation. Well, so she's very yeah. quiet, and she's, uh, mm-hmm. she's a good girl. I mean, you cannot imagine to have a better daughter than her. But... <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not going to say she's not good, and but the issue, but the issue I have with good is sometimes good means. Well, let me stop you there for a second. So good also can mean she does what adults like her to do, like she's. Uh, doesn't cause trouble so that's my concern and and so as you know i'm talking to you but i'm talking to everyone listening as well because i'm not saying you've done these things but a lot of times parents can give their kids a lot of these reinforcing types of feelings about being what they want them to be um, for example, you know, if you go to Mehmuni, a Persian dinner party, and a, a three-year-old boy is sitting there, and yeah. the three-year-old doesn't move the whole night, people will say, oh, look at this wonderful boy. He just was so polite, didn't cause any trouble. But that's actually concerning. The three-year-old should be playing, should be active, should be engaged. So sometimes what we prefer as easier and more convenient for us isn't really a child, and even as they get older, teenager, living their life and really expressing themselves. And this can happen even more in an only uh, child type of environment when you have a single child because it was just you guys and her. And so if she was being how you guys wanted her to be, it made sense. If there's two kids playing, they kind of play together and it's a different type of dynamic. But sometimes it becomes like a house of adults, including the child being that adult too. So parents have to always balance this mindset that of course it's easier for you just like if you have a baby it's easier if your baby always sleeps through the night but infants for example are going to wake up and we have to deal with that inconvenience of of course waking up and uh, disturbing our sleep and all of that because they're that's what a baby does and so a child for example makes a mess some parents they really have issues about cleanliness and making a mess and so they don't like for their par- their kids to make a mess even though that's what kids need to do to really play to express themselves it will be messy sometimes and we have to allow for that and then as they get older we have to allow for emotional messes too even when they're a child but uh, 
the messes that are emotional change as they get older and we have to allow for that space as well so we always have to balance this idea that of course as a parent you want things to be less stressful more convenient uh, we can understand that perspective but we have to make sure we don't take away from the child being a child and expressing themselves and and doing those things and not necessarily being good you know even teenagers i'm not saying they need to rebel in an extreme way but having some level of rebelliousness is actually healthy to that they're mm -hmm. challenging things challenging their parents challenging society challenging what they've been told and, and so a lot of times parents because they want everything to be good and they want their kid to be good and nice they can reinforce this um, mindset that it's so good that you never cause any problems it's so good that you never cause trouble so when you tell me uh, you know you couldn't have a better daughter again I'm, I'm sure your daughter is wonderful and lovely but my thought when you said that was also that she never caused any trouble which mm -hmm. isn't necessarily good because it could reflect a repressing a suppressing of, of who she is and what she was feeling at different times What is your suggestion, doctor, you know, of what kind of, you know, help you well, can get? Yeah, well, especially she's 21, and is she living at home? Uh, she, uh, right now, she's, um, she's, uh, she's not here. Um, mm -hmm. She's uh, visiting uh, my sister, but, uh, you know, I, I can um, persuade her to call you sometime. I mean, I'd be more than happy to talk to her, I, That's, but also with that comes the other point that I was going to make that what's most important is what she wants. So if yeah. she wants to call me, I'd be very happy to talk to her. But if she's calling because you ask her to call or tell her to call, then we wouldn't want, want to do that. Uh, okay. And that also relates to the bigger picture of we have to see what she wants, you know, especially she's 21. At a younger age, there's probably more you can do. It seems like you did these things trying to get her into sports team or different activities um, to try to look at what's going on and, and, and get her engaged with other people her age more. Um, but we also don't know what the problem is, but that, that's if we were going back then. But for now, we have to see what she wants. And so if you do talk to her about it, be aware that when you ask her, it's not coming off in a way that you're like, oh, what's wrong with you? You have a problem. You, you know, what are you doing? Um, we really want to try to understand what she's going through. And like I said, she could be happy with it. It could be that she wants more, but she's anxious of having more. So she's trying to just accept things as they are. The way you describe her, she can be good at just accept, you know, she'll choose the comfort of certainty, even if it's something she doesn't like, over putting herself in an uncertain situation. So she'd probably say, you know, I'm okay having this type of friendships that I have or being isolated in this way. I'm okay with it. It feels okay because it feels calm, but it might not feel fulfilling. And that would be my concern. I can't speak for her, and, and of course, neither can you, even if knowing her yeah. as her mom. Yeah. Is she feeling fulfilled socially? Is this what she wants? Is it what she wants now and also long term? things like romantic relationships um, I, I'll ask you about that in a second but w that's what we really need to understand but to get there we have to make sure the way we ask her doesn't come off in a way that makes her feel judged or that we're telling her she's sick or something's wrong with her or something needs to change but we're really trying to understand her and what she goes through and what she's experiencing and what she might like or not like about her current circumstances and then and only if she wants us to we can try to help her in whatever ways we can but she has to first see, 
think it's a problem, see a problem and want to make a change before we can try to interfere and try to, let's say, make friends okay. for her at this age, okay. especially. Thank you so much for your time, Doctor. It was a, a pleasure to talk to you. Sure. Let me ask you one, one last thing about romantic relationships. Has she expressed anything, um, experienced yeah, anything? Yeah, she's seeing um, someone and, and uh, you know, they are uh, very good together. And he's a nice guy, too. So everything, you okay. know. Okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah, nice is one of those interesting words. I uh, even... Um, I know it obviously sounds pleasant and good, but that's sometimes the problem with it is that it just revolves being good for other people, keeping people happy, avoiding conflict. Yeah. Nice is a very interesting, it's one of those words that sounds good, it sounds nice, <laughs> pun intended, yeah, but it's actually not very nice. So I think it's something to be aware of. We sometimes try to raise nice kids. I'm all about raising kind kids, meaning genuinely caring about people and wanting to do good things. But nice usually means uh, avoid conflict, people please, do what other people like, and actually isn't necessarily good. I, I know you didn't necessarily mean it in that way about this boy, but just wanted to make that point because it's a word that is used a lot, but usually uh, we think of it as something good, but really isn't so good. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing that we need a balance for our life, for everything. Yes, so exactly. uh, too much of everything is not that much good. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for calling. Good luck. And, you know, if she does, if she does, again, wants to call herself, I'd be more than happy to talk to her, but thank only if so she's much. wanting that. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. Have a good day. All right. Bye. You too. You know, maybe I'll add, uh, let me add some points on that because it's a few minutes and I don't want to bring on the next caller um, about being nice, you know, as she said, and I know she meant it in the, the good way. But I have realized when you look at this word nice, being nice, acting nice, what it really means is doing things so that other people feel good, to avoid conflict, for people to like you. Um, but it doesn't involve being genuine. That's usually what we think of. Even when you say, oh, that person is so nice, what we usually mean is someone who doesn't create problems, who doesn't have conflict, who always is happy feels good to be around them in the way that they don't make us feel down or bad. Um, but this isn't actually something healthy and something we should actually want. It's easier and more convenient to be around someone who's nice, but that doesn't mean it's good and that you're actually having a genuine close relationship. And so as I was saying with her, we sometimes want our kids to be nice because that's easier. It's easier to have a kid that never talks back the whole time until adulthood. That would be easier in that you just say do this and they do it, but you're not then really creating a full human being that has their own wants and needs and feelings and might disagree with you sometimes or not like the things that you are doing. So we want to be mindful of raising nice kids and being nice when we really look at that meaning of the word deeper and what we're, we're doing is that we're creating people who are doing things for others. We're not creating people that are living their own life. And, and so there's this range, of course, that, you know, she alluded to it in a way of too much of anything is not good. And I think that's true. It's finding that balance. Uh, someone who's nice, who would be categorized generally as acting in a passive way, meaning that they let everything go. They don't disagree. They don't um, uh, say their opinion because people might not like it. They just kind of let things happen. And we might say, oh, they're so go with the flow, easygoing. 
being easygoing itself is not bad, but oftentimes when people are easygoing, they're actually easy because they're putting away a lot of their own feelings and what they want. So if you never say anything, there's no disagreement. But that's not good. That means you're hiding things, you're putting things away. So that's one extreme is being passive. Of course, what unfortunately happens is very often when we, even ourselves as a society, whatever it might be, are experiencing something, we see it's unhealthy. We think that it's opposite is health. So if passive is bad, then I need to be aggressive. And that's what a lot of people do. They, they shift to the other extreme. So when we're aggressive, that means that we it's my way or the highway. I don't care if uh, what I do or say bothers you or affects you negatively. I'm just going to do it and I don't really care. I'm going to overpower you if I have to to get my way. So it isn't um, an actually balanced way of respecting you and me. It's putting myself above you. So in passive, you're putting the other person above you. In aggressive, you're putting yourself above the other person. But as is usually the case, it's a balance of in-between that we're looking for. And that's what we call being assertive, either assertive communication style or acting in an assertive way. What that means is that I can express my wants, my needs in, in a respectful way, but I won't hold them in. I won't try to overpower you, but I also won't keep what I'm saying inside. And so if we see where this is coming from, it's a I matter and you matter. We both have value and we both deserve respect. What I want isn't more important than what you want and what you want is not more important than what I want. And I won't swallow my feelings or my ideas or my thoughts just to make sure we don't disagree. I will state what I'm thinking and feeling and, and we can disagree with respect Unfortunately, something that we're seeing less of these days when we look at political discourse and debates, but we can disagree with respect. We might not agree or see things the same way, but we can both express that in a respectful way. So we want to be aware of where we fall on this continuum. And of course, it's not black and white or, you know, this way, three different colors, let's say, where you're one of these things only. Uh, in different situations, you might act in a different way, and at different times, it might require you to be a little bit different. There might be moments where it can make sense to be a little more passive or a little bit more aggressive. But overall, you want to see what is my way of being in general? Do I tend to be passive? Do I tend to be aggressive? Or do I tend more towards being assertive, which is what we want to strive towards, is how can I express myself, be true to myself, but also true to you? I don't need to swallow my feelings and I won't try to make you swallow yours. I am equal to you, whoever it is I'm interacting with. As an individual, if we're in a group, I'm always able to express myself. So we want to try to strive towards being assertive. And so being nice, as good as it sounds, it tends to mean we're being passive. It means we're holding things in just to make people like us to avoid conflict uh, and to people please. And that's actually not what we should be striving towards as an individual and also as a parent. Think about the tendency you're having because you want to avoid conflict, you want to avoid feeling uncomfortable or things getting messy, that you are pushing your kids towards being nice and being people pleasing, starting with you. People who become people pleasers tend to have started that with their parents first. Those were the first people they were trying to please, of course, the parents had so much impact on their lives, their opinions and feelings mattered so much. And so if the parent gives them that feeling that I'll like you more when you do things I like, I'll like you less 
when you don't do something I like, it can push the kid towards becoming a people pleaser to get that good feeling. But as a parent, as hard as it is, of course, when you disagree, it can lead to feelings, but you want to give your child that feeling that I love you no matter what. We can disagree and I still love you. And actually, I want to know what you're feeling and thinking, even if it does disagree with me, more than I want you to keep the peace. So we want to go for um, genuine authenticity more than just peace and ease. That's not really what we should be striving towards. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi, thank you for calling. Uh, thank you for listening to me. Sure. Uh, I called you last uh, Wednesday too, and I talked about I wanted to continue my education and thinking mm -hmm. about the psychology, and you gave me a lot of suggestion, and I really appreciate it for that. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I started my therapy from three days ago. Oh, uh, great. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah, and I'm so happy that you guide me through that too. And uh, through my own search, I noticed about ISTDP, Intense uh, Short-Time Therapy, that uh, Dr. John Fredrickson is working on that approach. Uh, and I bought a book to help myself. But the thing is, I wanted today to ask you, it's really interesting, the previous call, the person that talked with you about the feeling of her daughter, uh, I had the exact feeling that I don't, you know, it seems I feel more than it should be. And it, I, ha I want to tell you some background and then to listen to yours. Um, I had um, my parents, it seems they, they raised me with many do and don'ts when I was two, two three years, I think. But uh, soon I noticed that this is only the way that they are saying, but whatever I'm doing, they love me. So mm. after a while, I learned not to make them disappointed. I was, I was telling them yes for everything, but I would do whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. And it seems that I noticed my dad loves me even for even if I'm doing the wrong thing. But when I went to the society, I didn't notice that I'm doing the exact thing. Whenever someone telling me, okay, uh, what do you think for the weekend to go out? I was saying yes, but I, don't, I didn't mean yes, yes. I felt, mm -hmm. oh, this is a good idea, but I have to think. You know, but it seems because I didn't have the option to my mom, to, I didn't have that option of no, saying no. All the time I used to okay, say yes and later think if you want to do that or not. Right. And so let me ask uh, you there, what, what do you think, why do you think you would do that? Why would you say yes even when you're not sure or maybe even it's no? You know, I think because I loved my dad and I wanted to make him happy. Okay, and I mean, I I'm sure you love your dad, and, and, but that's the thing, is that you feel like to make him happy, you have to agree with him, and that you can't disagree with him. 
So clearly what it seems like you're saying is, and it, you're right to connect it with the previous caller and what I said after the caller, was, uh, you know, being nice or you were trying to avoid conflict. So someone says, hey, do you want to do this tomorrow? And you say yes, because you think that's what they want to hear. So you're not thinking, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I want? You're thinking, mm -hmm. what do they want? And what's going to make this, one, what's going to make this interaction more pleasant because there won't be a conflict? And, and two, to make sure they feel good and also that's more likely they're going to like me. And so that's exactly what I was saying at the end of the last segment was that we want to give our kids the feeling that we won't love them more if they agree with us or love them less if they disagree with us, that they're allowed to have their feelings and opinions, and it could be different from ours, but we don't love them based on their agreement or disagreement with us. So it seems like uh, even the way you said it is that I'll tell my parents something, but then do what I want to do. You're trying to, and, and you know, you, you learn from them how to do this, but you're trying to avoid the conflict of saying no mm -hmm. or sharing what you actually think, but then you still do what you want anyway. And it seems like that's created this pattern that you're doing it with other people, but other people might not respond the same way because people won't like it if you tell them, okay, yes, I'll see you Sunday, and then somehow you get out of it maybe that day or whenever it is. They won't feel good that you, you didn't stay true to your word. You didn't do what you told them you were going to do and so because you're trying to avoid that conflict in the moment you end up doing something that actually is more hurtful to them it's interesting people again this is why i didn't finish all the thoughts i have on this topic of nice i've even talked about how being nice is sometimes the meanest thing you can do because sometimes for example people are dating and they say oh i didn't want to hurt the person so i said i'm going to still date them but i knew i was going to break up with them because i'm being nice no you're not being nice you're just trying to avoid the conflict and the uncomfortable feelings of saying what's the truth of saying how you actually feel so it seems like your automatic reaction if someone asks you something is to give them the answer they want just to make mm -hmm. them feel better and again for them to like you and to avoid the conflict so it feels good to you too and rather than being genuine to yourself and so i think that's important that you're becoming aware of that mm -hmm. exactly because whenever i was saying and told to my mom no there was a big conflict in contrast mm -hmm. with my dad whenever i told him no because I, I already proved myself to my dad that I'm doing the good thing. He was happy. Okay, even it seems it, he was happy that I'm doing whatever I want. You know, mm -hmm. somehow I'm proving himself. I I have my own thoughts and I can think and do whatever I want. But for my mom, exactly the same thing. I wanted to avoid the conflict. Yeah, yeah, and that's why it's so important how people, of course, but also especially parents, because it has such a big impact, how you respond to your child disagreeing with you or, or doing something you don't even like or whatever it might be. I've worked with a lot of families where they tell me, oh, I want my, my son or my daughter to stick up to the teacher or to stick up to people also relates to the last caller, but stick up to people when they do something they don't like. And I always ask them, how easy is it for your child to stick up to you? If you do something mm -hmm. they don't like, do you allow for them to tell you or do you judge them, get defensive, get angry, make them feel bad about it, make them feel like they are wrong? So we want to show them in that primary relationship they have with us that it's okay to disagree, 
one, it's okay to disagree and we still love each other. And two, that conflict isn't the scary thing. We can disagree and talk about it and no one has to yell or get mean or uh, punish anyone. We can just disagree and still talk and have a conversation and it can end well and even end better than you holding things in. And I want to know what's going on inside of you. I don't want you to uh, hide something from me just because you think I'll like it better or it makes things feel more smooth. I want to know when you actually are upset with me. If you are you know, mad at me for something I did, I don't want you to hold it in. But a lot of parents say, oh, here, here she is complaining again. Here he is getting mad. Well, oh, we're the worst parent. Or you know, they get into these places, it's very defensive and judgmental. And then the kid shuts down and thinks, well, what's the point? I shouldn't tell them anything. And now they just hold it in, which might feel more pleasant, as I was saying before. But pleasant isn't our aim. Our aim is to have genuine relationships, which means everyone can express what they're thinking and feeling. Yes, and also say you don't believe that yes for me doesn't mean yes. It means I have to think, yeah, I can think about that. And right. it was interesting. Whenever people get mad or sad, I shocked. And I said, why they get mad? I said, yes, I mean, this is a good idea. But I didn't say, yes, I'm coming. You know, mm-hmm. it seems even in my dictionary, the yes means I'm thinking about that. It, but, but I want to stop you there. It doesn't mean that. Your yes means that's what you want to hear. Again, it's because you're, I I think, what I'm hearing you saying is that because you know that's what they want to hear, you say yes. But then you're going to think about it. Because you think, well, if they're asking me something, of course they want my answer to be yes. So you're giving them what they want, which is going to avoid the conflict, make them you think like you. Now, of course, as I was saying, if you tell people yes and then you change your mind, a lot of times they actually might start to dislike you because they feel like I can't trust what you're telling me. But I don't think it's just yes has this meaning. I I think you know what the word yes means. I think it's that because conflict is so unbearable and because your instant reaction is to say what you think the other person wants to hear, as soon as they say, hey, you want to go with me this weekend? You say yes, because you want them to feel good. You want to avoid the conflict. Like you were saying, it makes sense. With your mom, you learned that you can't disagree. Disagreement is scary. Disagreement means yelling and fighting and all these bad things. So when someone asks you something, say what they want to hear. And then later on, you can figure out what to do. But in that moment, it seems like your instant reaction is to just give them what you think they want to hear. And then later you you figure it out. So I, I don't to me, it's not about definition. To me, it's more about responding in a way that feels the most comfortable for you because you're trying to just avoid conflict at any cost. Yeah. That's that's right. Yeah, and then, uh, Farid, when I was 18, I got a friend with my husband that we are thinking now about the divorce. Uh, And he, and that time, whenever we had a fight, I felt I'm going to die. Hmm. And I don't know why I had that feeling, but it was intolerable for me. After two, three years, all the time, whenever we we had a fight, I felt, or argument or anything, I felt, our friendship is gonna broke and this is the mm-hmm. kind of feeling of dying uh, it seems after three years I started to make another mechanism and I said okay uh, let's all, always be already for broke up and it mm. seems my luggage all, you know imagine in my mind uh, I felt okay let's have your luggage always ready and 
if we want to break up, okay, don't worry, everything is ready and we can go. I mean, we, I mean to myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems um, that feeling was that painful that after three years, I started to find mechanism without knowing from nowhere to do in that way, to be more bearable for myself. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, you know, there's so much to what you said there. Um, first of all, I mean, the way you said it was very meaningful to me because that's how people feel. You said when conflict would come up, you said, I felt like I'm going to die. And I know maybe to some people it sounds dramatic or extreme. And I know, you know, in some ways it is, but it reflects what you're saying that with your mom, for example, you felt that if you have a disagreement, it leads to this fighting that means you're going to, the way you described it, you're going to lose her love. And if you're a young child or especially a baby and you lose your mother's love, you do die. That's why we have these feelings of attachment is that it comes from some feeling of survival that we need these people in our lives. We need to uh, depend on them. So when you have conflict come up, it triggers these feelings of if this turns into an argument, it turns into a fight, this leads to death. It leads to, and also, you know, not just even that dramatic, it leads to the end of the relationship, which is what a lot of people uh, feel about conflict, that you can't have a fight because once you do, the relationship ends. And especially you see this in Persian families, Iranian families, where they, they have these arguments and then for 20 years they never resolve the argument. It leads to the end of a relationship between brother or sister or cousins or friends or whatever it is. They end the relationship based on that one fight because we haven't had a lot of experiences of dealing with conflict in a healthy way, realizing that conflict is part of relationships, not the end of relationships. So it seems like you so strongly had this feeling, this instant reaction, that to you, conflict meant the end of the relationship. It's like, oh my God, we're fighting, that means divorce. Oh, that's instantly you had that feeling. And it's interesting, now I think it was progress, but it also shows still how tied into that it was, was that the only way you could embrace some level of conflict with him was to accept that, okay, maybe the relationship is already over. You had to accept that worst case scenario, which maybe didn't seem so bad if you were being unhappy in the marriage, but you had to accept that worst case scenario to have the conflict. And again, I think that is some level of progress, but what might be another way or even a further step of progress would be we can have this conflict and the relationship can withstand it. Not only that, we can have this conflict. I'm getting sick. You feel sick? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, for one week I feel sick, pain, uh, sweat a lot and everything, even though the conflict was only one hour. Yeah, and that shows us how, like I said, it brings up these feelings of attachment, of being abandoned, of being alone. It's so terrifying for you. And so your awareness of it is good. I'm glad you're becoming aware and you're, you started therapy. Now, it's interesting. I know when we talked last week, I mentioned to be ready to go to therapy for a long time. And I know you're talking mm-hmm. about intense short-term therapy, which is it's interesting because I think you're trying to get it, get it done with, which I, I can get. Everyone wants faster results if it's possible. But I think especially for you, longer term might be even better that to think of it as you're building a relationship with someone. I think that intense therapy is just for those people they have pain on their body just to re- to tell them how to switch the pain from their okay. body to feeding. 
Sure, that can be that thing. That's that sounds actually very interesting. I wouldn't mind studying that more myself because uh, I think that sounds very promising to, to help people in that way. Um, but I think also, and, and I'm glad you're seeing a therapist. I know you said you're reading about this and reading about it is fine. But I know we I think when we were talking about it last week, I mentioned how mm -hmm. I'd want you to get help with a person, you know, to, to have that relationship, yeah. not just try to read about it and self help yourself to actually seek help uh, from a professional outside as well. Yeah. Mm, and, uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, my father passed away 12 years ago and um, and I couldn't cry or even I couldn't feel that I loved my dad. And now I lost him and anything until that recently I, I noticed I didn't have the grief. I didn't cry in any for him. And um, little by little, I started just to work on that and these things and how I switch my feeling from the thing that I should feel to other thing. And one of my question is how, even, and I want to tell you that now that I wanted to start to feel what I'm feeling and even when I'm thinking what I feel, that makes me anxious, even thinking about what I'm feeling. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because, you, you know, those negative feelings were something that many have people have this experience. They were something intolerable, something really bad. They weren't dealt with in a good way. So many people can be very afraid of those negative feelings. And that's why when they feel sad, they quickly try to figure out how to get rid of it, whether it's drug or alcohol or uh, try to convince themselves of something or being with someone, whatever it is, they feel that those feelings are intolerable. And so I've talked about this issue of distress tolerance, distress tolerance, meaning that you can handle bad feelings or not a good feeling. It's actually a big indicator of mental health, meaning that if you're sad, you don't need to quickly get rid of it. You know, it's you're going to be okay, you can handle that feeling or if you're angry, or if you're whatever other feeling. And so actually having more tolerance for negative feelings doesn't mean we try to create them or we go towards them, but that we understand that as a part of being human being and living a life with individuals and our own experiences, we're going to feel bad feelings too. But like all feelings, they won't be permanent and they go away and I can handle them. That's a big sign of mental health. And for a lot of people that didn't get that experience from a young age, that it was okay to feel these feelings, that they were still loved if they felt those feelings, that they were given support and validation and empathy if they felt that way, these feelings become something very intolerable. And so we can understand that if you have that relationship with feelings like sadness, that when your father passed away and it was probably such intense feelings of sadness, it felt like too much for you to face those feelings. So you preferred to, you know, I think last week you were talking about putting them into boxes, into compartments, and just putting it away because it felt too unsafe, too scary to deal with. And I'm glad you're now taking the risks of trying to face those feelings, but I could understand it's going to be an uncomfortable process for you, which is also why having a therapist can help you because your first reaction is going to be to go away from that. Or even if you get a little bit into it to go away from that, even with a therapist, it's going to be hard, but it can make it easier and also make it uh, less likely that you give up on the whole process, which it will be a process. Yeah, and I, exactly. And I'm worrying to feel that the feeling of dying, the exact thing that I experienced at three years of the beginning of my relationship. And I'm worried about that. And it's okay. I learned some other technique not to 
be in that situation and again I'm going to unbox that feeling and again feeling of dying and um, that's a, a little scary for me too and the other thing is uh, you are saying that when you sad this feeling is gonna be over but I'm, I don't know I feel I don't know how I would know the sadness is gonna be you, you know yeah. when I would notice that is over you know okay I'm saying let's feel that sadness feeling but how to know that okay I felt that now I don't want it let's, let's leave it and let's leave it out <laughs> yeah you know that's a yeah, that's an interesting point because I know even I, I encourage people to feel those negative feelings because I think people avoid them so much but of course it doesn't mean just sit in the sadness and never get away from it either that you have to be sad every moment of every day but it's recognizing the feelings when they come and then they go so um, sometimes we can think of our feelings like waves if you're by the beach when a wave comes you like for example you can't keep it there and if a wave comes you don't like you can't push it away but you know that all the waves come and they stay for a little bit and they go back and so our feelings can be the same way when we're in touch with them you'll feel that sadness and you might feel like, okay, should I now go away from it or not? And it's not always going to be so clear. But as you get more in touch with your feelings, you'll see that they're not something scary and you can interact with them. And yes, sometimes let's say you feel sad in the morning, but you have to go to work or an appointment. You might have to recognize, you know, right now, these are important feelings, but I can't feel them or stay in these feelings because I need to get to work or I need to do something. And so I might have to feel this later or I might have to make time for it later. So it doesn't mean we just feel everything all the time at the full extent and that's going to be okay. But it's realizing that overall those feelings are not something we have to get rid of and we actually need to face them. And so it could be that because these feelings you have are so old and so big, that when you go into them, it might take some time and you might feel like, wow, that was a long time I felt sad. And I hope you will try to take those risks to go there and see what it's like. And there isn't a black and white moment I could say, feel it for one minute and then stop because feelings don't really work that way either. You can't just turn them off either. Um, but it's just taking more risks of letting yourself feel that pain. And I understand you just said there's an anxiety even of thinking about feeling it, and I can get that. And that's why I think having a therapist will help you, first of all, to feel supported in that process, but also kind of like how a physical, uh, a personal trainer will push your body to the parts where it might hurt a little bit, but that leads to growth. The therapist can push you to keep going into those places that hurt a little bit, but actually lead to you growing and healing. And that's why I think that that would be so important for you. Thank you, Farid. It was really great that you told me that. I'm just, uh, I don't have any questions. Just I want to leave the um, show to others. Or if you have any comments, I would listen to the radio. Well, no, you know, we're actually at, at a commercial break uh, a little bit um, few minutes past it so uh, we'll go to commercial break but i appreciate you calling and i'm so happy to hear you know i, I of course i don't know what's the right thing for someone to do but i did mm -hmm. encourage you to go to therapy and i'm glad you so quickly did that now even as i you said that and i thought about it it came back to this mindset of people pleasing and i don't want you to do it for me but for yourself mm -hmm. that you deserve to go there and keep going and i hope you will and i hope it will be helpful for you but thank you for calling again thank you Thank you. Have a Have great a day. day. Take care. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last, uh, the two callers we had, they both talked about this theme of nice and avoiding conflict 
which I think is so important to talk about because I mentioned this last week when I talked about uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail where he was expressing his despair, disappointment in the white moderate, who people who seemed to agree with what he was saying and what he was uh, upset about or what the, his movement was about with African-Americans and civil rights, but were being passive or seemed to prefer uh, a passive justice, meaning a lack of tension. And so I think it's so related to what we were just talking about in a societal level, an individual personal level, it always feels better in the moment to not have conflict, to have things be uh, calm. You know, if you talk to someone, uh, you want to do this? I want to do this. Good, good. Everyone's good. Great, great. That's beautiful. seems nice. It's definitely nice and emphasis on that word. It's easier. Um, But it's not being genuine and it's not really what we can expect long term to be how life is going to be. Life can't always just be nice and easy and we always get along and no one has pain or discomfort or feels hurt by what we're doing as a person as a family or as a society that's not the reality and as i was saying uh, the previous caller maybe the one before that we want genuine relationships which means everyone is authentic and real to themselves not just easy relationships easy relationships means Everyone just keeps in their feelings. We avoid conflict. We avoid disagreement uh, just to keep peace and keep things easy. But that's not really what closeness is about. I even talk to couples, both personally but also professionally, and they'll say, oh, yeah, we never fight. We've been together two, two years. We never fought. And what I usually tell them is I'm so sorry to hear that. I say it to kind of shock them in that way of it sounds like they're telling me something good but to let them know that it's something so concerning to me if you've been together in a romantic relationship for two years and you've never had an argument now i should also make it clear i don't mean you have to have an ugly fight what i mean is disagreement and arguments where you actually express things to each other and um, things might get uncomfortable but you have arguments if you haven't had an argument in two years of a romantic relationship something's going on either Um, one or both of you is holding things in and holding things back or you aren't very close and very likely a combination of the two because also when you hold things back you don't get as close when you don't have any conflicts you can't get as close because you're holding things in and so we have to recognize our goal when we're talking about a relationship is to genuinely be close to each other and for our partner to authentically express themselves to us or if you're a parent for your kids so if you're a parent i understand that you're having a nice day with your child it feels a lot better for it to end in that just nice way it doesn't feel as good if your child says mom yesterday what you did hurt me or dad i didn't like that you did this does it feel better to not hear that of course But you have to ask yourself if that's the reality of your child your child is feeling pain we have to accept that feeling of discomfort in the moment in order to truly love that other person if we only love someone when they do what we want and what we like and don't ever do something that makes us feel uncomfortable or bad we can't say we truly love that person imagine if your child uh, is feeling pain physical let's say just to simplify it in some way of course if your child 
broke their arm, would you rather their arm didn't break? Of course, every parent would. You don't want your child to have that experience. But once your child's arm is broken, don't you want to know so that you can then care for them, take them to the doctor, take care of them in every way that you can and be there for them? Of course you would. You wouldn't want your child to think, well, it'll make my mom or dad's day a little bit worse if they have to deal with my broken arm, so let me see if I can deal with it myself. But this is exactly what we do with our children when it comes to their feelings. We teach them that it doesn't make mommy or daddy feel good when you're sad or when you're upset with me especially because I'm gonna get very defensive and angry and attack you back. It doesn't make mommy or daddy feel good, so why don't you just always be okay? Always be nice. Always be easy. What a good kid, so easy. That's really sad when you're giving your child that message that I love you when you are easy for me. I love you for not having any problems or any issues, which also is saying I love you for not being human because human beings have sadness, have anger, do get hurt by things we do, even if you're a great mom or dad and are always trying your best, which I believe every mom and dad is doing, you're still going to upset and hurt your child. And we have to be open to accepting hearing about it. You should almost think if your child never told you they're upset with you, that should be alarming to you. Wow, my son or my daughter never said I did something they didn't like? How is that possible? Clearly it must mean they're not telling me something. Don't lie to yourself and say, no, it's because I'm such a good mom, such a good dad, I never do something my child doesn't like. That's just not possible. It's impossible to never do something that someone doesn't like or to have not done something that they wish we did do. That just is not possible. So you should actually feel alarmed, not, oh, you know, I heard about this son and uh, their dad or this son and mom or whatever the combination is having these fights. Me and my kid, we never fight. And you might think that shows how good we are. Just like when I talk to couples, that should be alarming to you if you never have arguments or disagreements. What is your child afraid to tell you? What is your child feeling that they don't let you know? How are they trying to make sure you feel okay more than expressing to you what they actually feel when they don't feel okay? So we have to take this matter very seriously. If we love someone, we want to know when they're upset with us or when they're hurt or if they're just having a bad day. True love means I want to know what you're actually experiencing, not I want you to make my experience easier. That brings us to the end of today's show. Again, the book of the week is Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling. Looking forward to sharing that with you on Monday night's show. A big thank you as always to Ghazaleh who's in the studio, making sure I can do the show remotely. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi. Have a wonderful day.